We come to consideration once more of two most important verses in the eighth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, namely verses 12 and 13. Verses 12 and 13 in the eighth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Now, we are looking at these important verses which constitute one general statement, as you observe, for the third time. And we are doing so because of their crucial importance in connection with the New Testament doctrine and teaching concerning sanctification. These two verses, as I'm trying to emphasize, are indeed very vital and crucial in a, a true understanding of this doctrine. And uh, we have been taking their message in the light of uh, two theories with regard to sanctification that are very well known and very popular at the present time and have been uh, for most of this century and indeed even longer than that. One of the theories which we are bearing in mind is a theory which tells us that it is possible for a man to be delivered entirely from sin, that sin can be taken right out of him, eradicated. It's a perfectionist teaching which says that a Christian can have a second experience and that in this second experience sin can be taken right out of his constitution altogether, out of his mind and heart and even out of his body, so that sin has been entirely eradicated. The other theory is one which disagrees entirely with that, but nevertheless claims that there is a second experience possible for the Christian, which can deliver him from the struggle and the fight against sin, and which can set him free. And it happens, according to this teaching, when a Christian man realizes his own utter hopelessness and hands over the whole problem of his fight with sin to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. It says that we all of us are always in Romans 7, but we need not have the defeat of the men of Romans 7, because we can pass over to Romans 8, and we do that by realizing our own utter hopelessness and handing all the problem over to our Lord. Let me read again to you some words which I have quoted on previous Friday evenings from a typical instance of this second teaching. It says, The crisis comes in the moment that a Christian gives up the struggle and comes out into the open and confesses that he is absolutely hopeless and hands it all over to the risen Lord. And the other way of putting that is, according to this teacher, that it means passing over from Romans 4 to 7 to Romans 8. Now that is a teaching which, as I say, is very familiar and very popular. And it's therefore very important that as we are considering the teaching of these two verses, we should take it in the light of these popular teachings concerning sanctification. Now, the thing we've seen in analyzing these two verses is this, that first of all, there is nothing here to tell us to hand it all over. 
There is nothing here which tells us that we are absolutely hopeless and that all we've got to do is to hand it over to the Lord Jesus Christ. On the contrary, what we find here is an argument and a deduction and still more important, an exhortation to us to do something and to keep on doing it. That the way to live the Christian life is not to say that we are hopeless and to hand it over to the risen Lord, but to, through the Spirit, to mortify the deeds of the body. And it is an appeal, an exhortation we saw that is addressed to us, and it is in the present continuous, which indicates that we've got to go on doing it. And we have seen that the apostle arrives at this exhortation as the result of what he's already been saying. He deduces it. Therefore, brethren, he says, in the light of what I've been telling you, this is what you've got to do. And we've considered his argument, the negative argument. He says, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. No, we are debtors rather to grace. So if you, through the Spirit, to mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. And we've worked out his arguments. Sin is left in the body. Yes, but it's the mortal body. It's only for a while, and therefore don't let that govern you. Rather repel that, mortify the deeds of the body. And then you have this great assurance that ultimately even your body will also finally be delivered, even as your spirit is now, for your spirit is already life. And so you will find yourself completely saved in body as well as in spirit. Now, there is his general argument. But uh, we feel that this matter is so important that we are emphasizing certain aspects of the teaching. I have already brought out two points in this emphasis. The first was this, that this teaching about mortifying the deeds of the body is in Romans chapter 8. You see, we are told if only we pass over from chapter 7 to chapter 8, that there there will be no more struggle, no more effort, we just hand it over to the risen Lord. It is in Romans 8 in verse 13. This chapter, which we are given to understand, uh, tells us that we've got to do nothing, that all our defeat is due to the fact that we've been trying to do something. Here is an exhortation to us to begin and to go on mortifying the deeds of the body. It's in Romans 8, not in Romans 7. That surely is most important. But secondly, we have also seen that this is not an isolated text. I must have spent at least a quarter of an hour at the end last Friday night in quoting passages of Scripture, New Testament Scripture, one after another, saying exactly what we are told here. The same appeal, same exhortation, the same argument, the same deduction. It is typical, characteristic New Testament teaching everywhere. If this were the only statement to this effect, there might be something to be said on the other side. Even then it couldn't be dismissed, because it's such a plain and a clear and an explicit statement. But as I showed you, far from being an isolated text, it is one of the most typical and characteristic New Testament statements that you can ever find. It doesn't stand alone. It is what this apostle and the apostle Peter and the apostle John and the writer to the Hebrews and James in his epistle, they all unanimously are teaching the same thing. Very well, but let us go on. A third point which I would make is this. That if that other teaching is true, if either of the other teachings is true, 
then there is no need for any argument or deduction whatsoever. There would be no room left for any argument or any deduction. And certainly there would be no variety in the argument. You see, if the other teachings are true, well then, all the apostles and all the apostles need have done would be something like this. In writing their letters to these Christian people, these early churches, which uh, were having this problem of fighting against sin, against the world and the flesh and the devil, and all the opposition and the persecution, all the apostles need have said would be something like this. They would have written the first half of their epistles, reminding them of the doctrines. Then all that would have been necessary would be this. They would say, but now wait a minute. There is something further we've got to say to you. And the something further is this. If you only realize that you must not go on fighting or struggling any longer, if you only realize that you are absolutely hopeless, and that all you need to do is to hand yourself and all your problem over to the risen Lord, and he will give you victory, and as long as you abide in him, he'll keep you in a position of victory, you will find that all will be well. That's all they would have said. There'd be no need to say anything more, anything further. There would be no need of any argument, no need of any exhortation. There'd be no need to deduce things out of the doctrine. They would simply say that. And of course, these teachings do that, and that is all they do. They say that nothing is necessary. All you need is this second experience, this crisis leading to a process. You've got to come out into the open. You've got to confess that you're absolutely hopeless. You've got to hand it all over to the risen Lord. The crisis comes in the moment that a Christian gives up the struggle. So they keep on saying that. They tell people, stop struggling. That's your whole trouble. Stop struggling. Realize you can't do it. Realize you're absolutely hopeless. Hand it all over to the risen Lord. That is all they say. And they're quite consistent, of course. Believing that, that is all there is to say. But we have seen in our quotations, as we've seen here, that the New Testament writers have a great deal to say. Take the passage I read at the beginning tonight out of the epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 4, 17 to 5, 8. Did you notice the variation in the argument? He, he appeals to them for Christian conduct and behavior because they've been born again. He does it then in the second place because the Spirit is in them and they mustn't grieve the Spirit by whom they are sealed unto the day of redemption. He then says, you are children of God. Well, as children of God, be followers of God and don't do this. Then he reminds them that Christ has died for them. He deduces his argument from that. Then he reminds them of the judgment. Now, that's the New Testament method. The New Testament has not merely got one message on sanctification. These other teachings have only one message, of course. All you need is this second experience and everything's done for you. But here... Every doctrine of the Christian faith is brought forward. An argument is deduced from it. We are told in the light of this, can't you see that you must stop doing that and you must start doing this? All the doctrines are brought in. The doctrine of sanctification in the New Testament is not just one theme which is harped upon and illustrated by means of illustrations. No, no. The, to the total doctrine comes in. And deductions are taken, arguments are worked out, and we are exhorted to put it into practice. So that it seems to me quite clearly that these other theories concerning sanctification, 
render the New Testament method unnecessary, osious, and there is no room left whatsoever for an appeal such as we have in this text that we are looking at. Now, it's very interesting to me. I've got a friend who holds the first of the two theories, the perfectionist theory, a very able man. And I have put before him this exhortation in the 13th verse here. If ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And I've put it like this to him. I've said to him, if it is possible for a man by an act of surrender and of a faith taking the baptism of the Holy Spirit to have sin taken right out of him, then why did the apostle ever write this? And he is man enough and honest enough to admit that he cannot answer. He admits that on his theory there was no purpose in this. There is no value in it. If it is all taken out of us, why should we mortify the deeds of the body? He cannot answer. And there is no answer. There is no answer from the standpoint of either of those theories. This one verse alone is enough. But when you add all the others to it, you see that the case in the New Testament is perfectly plain and clear. But let us go on. I would show in the fourth place that these theories are quite inconsistent with the New Testament view of the Christian men. Now this to me is tremendously important. I want to show you that those views, especially the second, is inconsistent with the New Testament view of and teaching concerning the Christian men. Now this is what I mean. Listen to what the teaching tells us again. The crisis comes in the moment that a Christian gives up the struggle, comes out into the open, and listen, and confesses that he is absolutely hopeless. I suggest to you that that is a denial of the New Testament teaching, and I do so like this. I do not hesitate to assert that it is quite wrong, and here are my reasons. If the Christian man is absolutely hopeless and can do nothing, then why are these appeals and exhortations addressed to him? Is it right, is it fair to address an appeal, an exhortation, a command to a man who is absolutely hopeless and can do nothing? Surely the very appeals in and of themselves presume an ability in the people to whom they're addressed to carry them out. I say again, if a man is absolutely hopeless, well, all you need tell him is this. Well, you can do nothing. Hand it over to the Lord and he'll do it for you. But here we have appeals and exhortations telling us to do something, presuming, I say, upon our capacity to do it. But still more serious. It seems to me that these theories, especially the second again, is quite inconsistent with the New Testament teaching concerning regeneration and what indeed we have already been told about the Christian men by the Apostle Paul in this very epistle to the Romans that we are studying together. What do I mean? Well, I mean this. I am here to assert that a man who is a Christian is not absolutely hopeless. 
And that to say that a Christian is absolutely hopeless is to deny what the apostle has already told us about him. Listen to what he's told us. Take it first negatively. He has already told us about the Christian men that he is no longer a slave of sin. He was once, but he is no longer. He told us that in chapter 6 in verse 17. Listen, that God be thanked, he says, that you were the servants or the slaves of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Then he goes on to say, being then made free from sin and become the slaves of righteousness. You see, we mustn't say the Christian man is absolutely hopeless. The man is absolutely hopeless before his regeneration because he's dead in trespasses and sins. He is a slave of sin. He is under the dominion of sin. But in 6.14 the apostle tells us, sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Indeed, he's already told us at the beginning of chapter 6, this. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, says the apostle. Why? How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? The Christian man absolutely hopeless? Of course he isn't. It's a lie to say that he is. He was hopeless before. He's no longer hopeless. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? I'm no longer dead to sin. I'm no longer hopeless. That's what the apostle tells us. Now he's taken the trouble to tell us all these things. And he doesn't arrive at this exhortation of his, except in the light of all these things he's told us about ourselves. Take another one. He's already told us that we are no longer in the flesh. Now in chapter 7 in verse 5 he said this, when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death, of course. When we were in the flesh, when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin defeated us completely. But you see, we are no longer in the flesh. That's the whole marvel, he says. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And as we've already seen in this 8th chapter in the ninth verse, he puts it like this. He says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. My friends, the Christian is not absolutely hopeless, and we must never say that. He's no longer in the flesh. He was hopeless when he was in the flesh, but he's no longer there. He are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. So that's another important thing. And then this other tremendous point, of course, that we are no longer under the law. Now there I go back again to chapter 6, verse 14. Sin, he says, shall not have dominion over you. Why? Well, because you are not under the law, but under grace. And again, you see chapter 7, verse 5. When we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, you remember, which were stimulated, energized by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Ah, and then don't you remember the whole of the exposition of chapter 7 uh, from verse 7 uh, to the end of the chapter in verse 25? We spent many weeks over that and you see it was very necessary that we should in order to clear the ground for what we are now doing. 
There I was at pains to point out to you that the men described in Romans 7, 7 to 25, is not your regenerate men. He is a man who is under the law, but has been awakened to the truth about the law. He is under terrible conviction. The law is convicting, but he knows no more. And what happens to him? Well, as the apostle tells us at such great length, the more he knows about the law, the more passions are inflamed within him. That's the terrible thing he told us at such great length. He says, uh, I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it slew me. And then he went on, you remember, in that second chapter, in second half of the chapter, to say exactly the same thing. The law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. What I do, I allow not, and that I would, I do not, but what I hate, that I do, and so on. And he says, it comes to this. I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members, O oh, wretched man that I am. Ah, yes, but he was under the law the whole time. But now, you see, the glory of the Christian position is this, that he is no longer under the law. And what happens when a man is under the law, namely that the law inflames his passions and aggravates his problem, is no longer true concerning him. He is not under the law, but under grace. And so, you see, you come to the beginning of this great chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. All that he's been describing in chapter 7. Now, there it is negatively. You mustn't say the Christian is absolutely hopeless. He is not absolutely hopeless because he is no longer under the dominion of sin. He is no longer in the, in the flesh. He is no longer under the law. If you like it in a phrase, he is no longer in Adam. It is while he's in Adam that he's hopeless. But the moment a man becomes a Christian, you must never say of him that he's absolutely hopeless. But look at it positively. What is the positive truth concerning the Christian? He is in Christ. Chapter 5, wasn't it? He was in Adam. He's now in Christ. What Adam did was imputed to him. What Christ has done is imputed to him. He inherited so much of pollution, etc., from Adam. He is inheriting the exact opposite from Christ. Taken out of Adam, put into Christ, engrafted into Christ. The great theme, again, of the, of the early part of chapter 6. You mustn't say of a man who's in Christ that he's absolutely hopeless. Yet that's exactly what this teaching says. The Christian, he says, he gets this relief and he gets his victory. He passes over from Romans 4 to 7 into Romans 8 when, ah, the crisis comes in the moment that a Christian gives up the struggle, comes out into the open and confesses that he is absolutely hopeless. A man who is in Christ confessing that he's absolutely hopeless. My dear friends, this is a travesty of the Scripture. It's a denial of the plain teaching of the Scripture. This man, I say, is in Christ. Not only that, he is alive unto God. We were told that way back in chapter 6, verse 11, Likewise reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but 
alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord, is such a man absolutely hopeless? The thing is ridiculous. Here is a man who is now alive and open unto all the gracious operations of the grace of God. Alive unto God. He's alive from the dead, as he puts it. No, no, this man is no longer hopeless. Or take it like this. He's a man who's under grace. He was under law, but he's now under grace. Listen, at the end of chapter 5. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And yet I'm told the Christian man who's born again is absolutely hopeless. No, no, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That, as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. A man who's under the reign of grace must never be described as absolutely hopeless. Or look at it like this. He's a man who's got a new principle of life in him. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Of whom is that written? Of every Christian. That is the simple truth about any man who's a Christian. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is in that and that's in him. He's no longer under the law of sin and death. New life in him. Or listen to Peter's way of putting that. Peter says we are made partakers of the divine nature. And yet I'm told about such a man that he's got to admit that he's absolutely hopeless. That he can do nothing. He's got to hand it all over. Listen to John saying, John says that his seed remaineth in him. And he cannot sin. The seed of what? Well, the seed of divine life. The seed of the new nature. This new principle that, that has been put into him. It's in him and it remains in him. Is such a man absolutely hopeless? Or take the way the apostle puts it again in, in Ephesians 4 verse 16. Where he reminds us as Christians that we are all members of the body of Christ. Of whom he says the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Christ is the head and his life comes down through every member and part and portion of his body. We are parts of the body of Christ joined to him who is the head. And yet I'm told I've got to confess that I'm absolutely hopeless and can do nothing and I've got to hand it all over. It's almost incredible. No, no. The Christian is a man who's got a new nature. And because he has a new nature, he has new motives, new desires. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The Christian is a man who says that the law of God is no longer grievous to him. His commandments, says John in his first epistle, chapter 5, his commandments are not grievous. They're very grievous to the unregenerate. They're not grievous to the regenerate. Now this man has got a new life, a new outlook, new desires, new everything. He's a new creation. 
And then take this other tremendous thing that the Apostle has just been telling us about this man in this very chapter. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in him. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Then listen. If the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you, in every Christian. Know ye not, says Paul to the Corinthians, that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Ghost that dwelleth in you? That's true of all Christians. The Holy Spirit is in us. He's working in us. He's empowering us, giving us the ability. He's resident in us. So that John can say again, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. He's in us. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Yes, it's all this. Well, how does it work, says someone? Well, of course, it works like this. And this is the New Testament teaching. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We've got to do it. We've got to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? The answer is because it is God that worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The Holy Spirit is working in us, both to will and to do. And it is because I'm not left to myself, it is because I'm not absolutely hopeless, because the Spirit is in me, that I am exhorted to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. The Spirit is working in me to do that, both to will it and to do it. Or if you like, take it as it's put so plainly in the epistle to the Ephesians in the second chapter. There the apostle contrasts the position of the unregenerate with the regenerate. Not of works, he says, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now, the man who's unregenerate can do no works that is of any value at all. He's got to realize that it is all by grace through faith. By grace are he saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. That's justification. That's the way you become a Christian at all. Oh yes, we are his workmanship in this matter. Created in Christ Jesus. What for? Well, unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. He's made us, given us the new life and the new nature when we could do nothing. When we were dead, we were quickened by him. We could do no works. Ah, but he's quickened us. He's given us life. He's made us anew. And now he's made us that we may put into practice these good works that he hath before ordained. That's the way it works. And so we found, you see, at the beginning, 
in Ephesians 4.24, this exhortation, that he put on the new men which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. The Christian is not absolutely hopeless, quite the reverse. He must realize what he is, and this is what he is. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. We are not hopeless, we are children of God. And further, we've got to realize this, that because we are the children of God and because we are joined to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the body, that there is a mighty power working in us, before which nothing is impossible. Listen to the apostle putting it at the beginning of the epistle to the Ephesians in the first chapter. He prays for these Ephesians that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Or listen to it at the end of Ephesians 3. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. It's already working in us as Christians. This power of God that by whereby he raised Christ from the grave, it is in us. It's exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. It's in us. Realize it, says the apostle. And because it's there, go on with your work. Surely, in the light of all this, it is entirely wrong and completely unscriptural to try to get Christian people to say that they're absolutely hopeless and that they can do nothing. What the scripture says to me is this, realize who you are and what you are. Realize that you've been born from the dead. Realize that you've been quickened. Realize that you're in Christ. Realize that God's power is in you. Realize that the Holy Spirit is resident in you, empowering you, both to will and to do. Realize what you are and get about your business. Don't say I'm absolutely hopeless and hand it all over to the risen Lord. You're not absolutely hopeless. Here is the power. It's in you as a Christian. Realize it and get on with it. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This teaching I am suggesting doesn't do justice to the New Testament doctrine of regeneration. A man who is born again is not absolutely hopeless. Rather is he a man who is filled with hope and who is under grace. Or look at it like this. These teachings are inconsistent, it seems to me, with the principle of growth that is so plainly taught in the New Testament scriptures. The other teaching says that the Christian is absolutely static. That he never grows, he never develops at all. Do you remember the illustrations? Here's the famous illustration to illustrate the teaching of counteraction. We are told that a Christian is something like this in this matter of sanctification. Take, says the men, a poker. What is true of a poker? Well, what's true of a poker is that it is hard, 
It is rigid. It is black. Very well, there is your poker. Black, hard, rigid. But put it now into a file. Do you see the blacksmith putting it into the file? And he blows the bellows. What happens? Well, the poker that was black and hard and rigid becomes red and soft and malleable and can be bent. Ah, yes, he says. While it is still in the fire. But he says if you take it out of the fire, it becomes again cold, black, hard, and rigid. While in the fire, hot, red, malleable, soft. But the moment you take it out, it reverts to its former condition. And there it is, black and cold and hard and rigid as before. In other words, there's no change in the thing itself, you see. It only is changed while you're holding it in the fire. There is no actual change in the thing itself. It's the fire and the abiding in the fire that makes the difference. His other illustration is that it's like uh, using a, a swimming belt or a life belt. There's a man who can't swim. It's all right. Put him into the ocean, but put on a swimming belt, a life belt. And though he can't swim, he's held up by the life belt. Yes, but if the man wriggles out of the life belt, he'll sink to the bottom. And then if he gets hold of the life belt again, well, he'll be kept floating. Now, those are the illustrations. And we are told that the Christian is like that, and that is sanctification. As long as I abide in Christ, I shall have my victory. The moment I cease to do so, I go back to where I was before. I'm exactly where I was before. It all depends upon my abiding in Christ. Now, I suggest that that leaves no room for growth. Whereas the New Testament teaching is full of growth, a man starts as a babe in Christ. John talks about little children, young men, old men. What's it mean? Growth, development, maturity. Of course. Is it conceivable that a man can spend years in communion with God and with Christ and the Spirit working in him and absorbing the teaching of this book and to be exactly the same at the end as he was at the beginning? It's impossible. No, no, a man grows and develops and matures. He's exhorted to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the law. You see, the trouble with those other illustrations is that they're not only unscriptural, but they're wrong. What is the scriptural illustration? It's this. It's not a poker being put into the fire, no, but it is very much a branch being engrafted into a tree where there is life and sap and vitality coming through that trunk and entering into him. It is the body, a living organism, not something dead and inert kept in a fire. The illustrations are wrong. Not only unscriptural, they're false. They leave out the element of life and of power and of growth and development and maturity and increasing in your fruitfulness as you go on and on. That's the New Testament teaching, which is the exact opposite of what we find in these other theories. When a Christian falls into sin, he doesn't go back to the beginning. Thank God. So many Christians think that he does. Oh, they say, I've sinned. I've gone right back to the beginning. But you haven't, my friend. If you want an illustration, take this one. Think of a man climbing a mountain. Here he is beginning the ascent, and he falls. Well, he's fallen at the foot of the mountain. 
But he gets up again and he goes on. And he's been climbing now for weeks and months and years. And there he is, two-thirds up the mountain. He falls again. Does that mean that he falls all the way to the bottom? Thank God he doesn't. He has fallen, yes, but he hasn't fallen back to the foot of the mountain. He's fallen two-thirds up the mountain. He hasn't cancelled all that he's climbed. Thank God he hasn't. Of course he hasn't. Neither does the Christian when he falls into sin. It's no use saying that he reverts again into the old condition of cold, black, rigid and inert and all the rest of it. It's not true of the Christian. It denies the element of life and of growth and of development. He falls two-thirds up the mountain, I say. And he gets up and he goes on again. That's the Christian position. This is vital. This is life. And it must never be thought of in terms of a life belt or something mechanical and something external. These analogies and illustrations, I say, are completely false. The Christian is not a man who is absolutely hopeless, who is holding on to Christ. It's not true of him. He's in Christ. And the life of Christ is working in him through the Holy Spirit. The other notion is a denial of this glorious doctrine of the union of the believer with Christ. He can't be holding on and then letting go and reverting to where he was. He is in Christ and he's always in Christ. He does abide in Christ. The seed remaineth in him. But let me proceed to another argument which is this one. We are told that this doctrine of the apostle here where he tells us to mortify the deeds of the body is discouraging because it leaves it all to us. That's how it's put. And the other we are told is so marvelous, you see. He takes it out of your hands. You hand it over to the risen Lord. He does it for you. He keeps you. And it's, of course, very attractive. It seems to say it's all right. Stop struggling. Stop doing anything. Realize you're absolutely hopeless. Hand it over. He'll do it for you. Marvelous, people say. This other is so discouraging. But wait a minute. On the surface, it looks like that. But the moment you begin to examine the two teachings beneath the surface, you will very soon discover that it is this other theory that's really discouraging, and this is full of hope. How do you do it? Well, like this. That other theory that seems so attractive in the last analysis leaves it all to you. How so, says someone, well, like this. This is how he puts it. As long as you abide in Christ, he'll keep you. As long as you keep the poker in the fire, it will be red and hot and malleable. But if you don't keep it in the fire, it'll become cold and black and hard and rigid again. They say, as long as you keep on abiding in Christ, yes, but you see, my job is, how am I going to do that? With the world and the flesh and the devil round and about me and sin still left in my body, how can I abide? It's all very well to say Christ will keep me if I ab Ah, but it's my holding on to Christ that seems to do it. It leaves it all to my holding on to Christ. It leaves it all to me. It is my abiding in Christ that really matters. It's handed it all back to me, though it seemed to be taking it all from me. But you know, the teaching of the apostle doesn't do that. The apostle's teaching is this. He says, what matters about you is, not you are holding on, but he's holding on to you. He who took hold of you when you were dead in trespasses and sins, and who has quickened you, has begun a good work in you, and he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I'm in his hand. 
It's not my holding on that matters. It's that he's laid hold on me. He has apprehended me. He has arrested me. He has chosen me to be one of his own. He has taken hold of me and he's working in me. He is working in me powerfully. Listen, says the apostle, it is the will of God, even your sanctification. And if it is his will, he'll carry it out. And the author of the epistle to the Hebrews puts it as strongly as this. He says, look here, be careful what you're doing. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he calleth. If you are not enduring chastisement, you're not sons, you're bastards. He says, if you're a child of God, look here, he's going to sanctify you. We've had fathers of our flesh that corrected us. They did it for our good. I know, but it seemed to please them also. But listen, the father of spirits, he says, he has got one interest only, and that is your sanctification, that you should be holy as his children. And if you don't listen to his appeals, he will scourge you. If you don't listen to the exhortations of his gospel and mortify the deeds of your body and your members that are on the earth, he will scourge you. He may send an illness upon you. He may ruin your circumstances. He may take some dear one from you by death. He will bring you. He scourgeth every son whom he calleth, whom the Lord loveth each chasteneth. He doesn't leave it to me, but he tells me that I'm in God's hands. He's my father, and he's going to bring me to perfection. You see, it's no longer dependent upon my holding on. It is that he has laid hold upon me. And he's put his spirit in me. And the spirit works powerfully that I may both will and do his good pleasure. So, you see, this far from being discouraging is the only encouraging teaching. I've had dozens of people in my ministerial life coming to me and saying, you know, I don't seem to be able to surrender. I don't seem to be able to abide in Christ. I've been trying to surrender. I've been trying to do it. I don't... They come to me. They say, what can I do? And this is the answer. Realize the truth about yourself. Stop saying that you're absolutely hopeless because you're not absolutely hopeless. You're born again. The life of God is in you. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. And he's almighty. Go on. Do your work. But how can I, you say? Well, that's what the man with the withered arm might have said to the Lord Jesus Christ, wasn't it? You remember the Lord said to him, stretch forth thine hand. But what's the use of saying that to a man whose trouble is that his hand is paralyzed? Yet that's what our Lord said, stretch forth thine hand. And the man did it. And here he says, mortify the deeds of the body. How can I, you say? Well, he's telling you to, and you'll find you can. Do it. Stretch forth thine hand. The power is in the command. It comes to us through the Spirit. Never say that a Christian is absolutely hopeless. A man born again, born of the Spirit of God, is not absolutely hopeless. He has life, he has power, he has ability. And finally, the last argument that is generally brought forward is this. The so-called argument based on results. They say you're denouncing this other theory. But you know, look what it's done in practice. Look at the stories that people tell of the release they've had and the happiness and so on and how they've dropped off certain sins and so on. It must be right. Look what it does. Wait a minute, my dear friend. What a dangerous thing to say. Along that line, you know, you can prove anything you like almost. If you want to argue like that, well, you better go to the first Christian science meeting you can find. You'll find dozens of people saying that very kind of thing. Haven't you ever met them? My life was miserable, this is. I was always in a state of failure, always suffering from nerves, couldn't do anything. I was taken to a Christian science meeting. There I heard about this, that there was no such thing as evil, 
No such thing as matter, in a sense. No such thing as pain. No such thing as disease. Do you know, I was entirely transformed. My whole outlook has been changed. I no longer worry. I have no, no, no longer these troubles and problems that got me down. They testify to all that. Does that mean that Christian science is true? And then, having been to the Christian scientists, go to the theosophists. And they'll tell you the same thing. Then, if you want to be still more intellectual and philosophical, go to people who teach what they call anthroposophy. And they'll tell you the same thing. Then, when you've rounded them, better go to America and go to the science of thought teaching. Then, when you've finished with them, go to those who teach positive thinking. Every one of them produces this identical argument. Yoga, the yogi treatment and philosophy. It cures all your troubles. You'll never be ill again. You'll never worry again. You'll get rid of your besetting sins simply by practicing yoga. They all teach this. And then they bring forward their witnesses to testify the, to the truth of what they're teaching. That is the typical argument of every cult. Christian people shouldn't use such arguments. There is only one test for any teaching. It is the test of this word of God. It is the test of the scripture. We mustn't be guided by mere testimonies. We must be guided by the plain, clear teaching of the word of God. And surely it is abundantly plain and clear. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh because we are no longer in the flesh. And the sin that remains in us is only in our bodies. The spirit is life because of righteousness. The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. And the Spirit of God dwells in... We are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. Out upon the suggestion. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Will you forgive me if I use my old illustration that I used in chapter 6? What Christian people need is not... Casualty clearing station, not a hospital. The church is not a hospital primarily, it's a barracks. And here we are on this barracks once more, and here is the Sergeant Major Paul speaking to us. And what does he say to us? There we stand, a regiment of Christian people who've been failing and complaining that things are going wrong, that we're not doing well. What does he say to us? He says, look here, you're absolutely hopeless. There's nothing you can do at all. You must be brought into hospital. You've got to admit you can't do this thing. You must hand it all over. You must take hold of the electric current and then you'll be filled with power. You're absolutely hopeless. Does he say that? I find him saying the exact opposite. I hear him standing and saying, attention! Realize who you are, men. Stand up! What are you doing slouching like that on this parade ground? Don't you realize that you're children of the heavenly king? What are you groaning and moaning and apologizing about? Don't you know that the spirit of God dwells in you? Don't you know that you're partakers of the divine nature? 
What are you whimpering about? What are you talking about the world and the flesh and the devil? Don't you know that he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world? Stand up! Full attention! March! And quit yourselves like men. No more of this lethargy. No more of this weakness. No more of this moaning and groaning. Realize what God has done to you. Realize what you are, what he's made of you. And walk and march with your heads erect. As those who were once in the flesh, who once belonged to darkness, but are now light in the Lord. Children of the heavenly king, as ye journey sweetly sing, we are marching to Zion. And let us march as men, worthy of our commander, worthy of our God, worthy of our heavenly Father. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Very well, we are exhorted to mortify the deeds of the body through the Spirit that is in us. And God willing, next Friday night, I shall just try to tell you something in this closing meeting of this session. Something of what that means in actual practice. But realize you've got the ability, and he calls upon us to do it in the light of the truth concerning us. Let us pray. O oh Lord, our God, how can we thank thee sufficiently for this glorious truth concerning ourselves, that we have the right and the authority to be called the children of God. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. We know not yet what we shall be, but we know that when he doth appear, we shall see him as he is and be like him. O oh God, we thank thee for what thou hast done and wrought in us by thy blessed Holy Spirit. We thank thee that thou hast planted us and incorporated us in Christ, that we are new creatures and new creations, that thy Spirit dwells within us. O oh God, forgive us that we do not realize this as we ought, that we are so ready to listen to ourselves and our own unworthy thoughts and the suggestions and accusations of the devil. O oh, God, forgive us that we do not believe thy word as we ought, as little children and in simplicity. God, have mercy upon us, and so bring thy truth to us, with power and authority and might in the Spirit, that we shall never thus speak again, but shall proceed in the power of thy might, which thou hast placed within us, to do these things to which thou dost call us and which thou dost commend us. O oh God, receive our humble prayers, and dismiss us this night with thy blessing. And now may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit, abide and continue with us. Now this night, throughout the remainder of this hour, short and certain, earthly life and pilgrimage, and until we shall see him as he is, and be like him in glory. Amen.
We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.